Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Nine Days in July is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios in association with High Five Content. April 23rd, 1967. Cosmonaut Vladimir Mikhailovich Komarov has been in space for more than 24 hours. It has been the longest day of his life. No sooner had he reached orbit than one of his spacecraft's solar arrays failed to properly deploy. His ship is now dangerously low on power. The partially deployed panel also obscured some critical navigation equipment, meaning Komarov is finding it nearly impossible to steer. To make matters worse, his communications equipment is not functioning properly. His spacecraft is, as one Russian official will later call it, a piece of shit. The 37-year-old Colonel Komarov had been chosen as the cosmonaut to ride aboard Soyuz 1, the Soviet's newest and most advanced spacecraft, designed as part of their effort to beat the Americans to the moon. Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space and Komarov's best friend, was chosen as his backup. As the launch day approached, it was clear to Komarov and Gagarin that the spacecraft was not yet ready. The untested space vehicle was shoddily constructed, and the engineering team identified more than 200 serious structural problems, including the parachutes, which repeatedly failed to deploy correctly. The three previous unmanned Soyuz test flights had all failed. Komarov and Gagarin drafted a letter outlining their concerns and asking that the mission be postponed until the issues could be properly addressed. But it was quickly buried. The powers that be wanted a bold triumph to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the communist revolution. The mission would go forward. Before he departed, Komarov told a colleague that he was not going to make it back from this flight. When asked why he did not simply refuse the mission, Komarov said that if he did, Gagarin would go and die in his place, and he could not do that to his best friend. The previous morning, as Komarov waited inside his Soyuz capsule, conducting his pre-flight checks, Several witnesses claimed that Gagarin arrived at the launch pad, demanding to take his friend's place. But Gagarin was a national hero, and there was no way that was ever going to happen. After more than a day in orbit, wrestling with malfunction after malfunction, Soviet ground control orders Komarov to cut his mission short and return to Earth. 
After 18 agonizing orbits, Komarov fires his retro rockets and heads for home. After making it safely through the Earth's upper atmosphere, and with the Russian countryside opening up beneath him, Komarov deploys his parachutes to slow his descent. But nothing happens. The chute deploys, but it doesn't inflate. Komarov has a manually activated reserve chute for just this sort of emergency. He yanks it loose, but it instantly becomes tangled with the trailing primary chute. Traveling at nearly 90 miles per hour, Soyuz 1 smashes into the Russian steppes like a three-ton meteorite. A rescue helicopter finds the wreckage by following a massive tower of black smoke. The capsule is burning so hot that the metal has gone molten. What's left of Komarov looks like a massive marshmallow, burned to a misshapen cinder over a campfire. Before his departure, he stipulated that if anything should happen to him, his funeral would be open casket, so that the Soviet leadership would be unable to hide what they had done. Vladimir Komarov is the first person to die in the race for space. This is Apollo Control at 147 hours, 39 minutes. The flight surgeon reports that all three crewmen now are awake. Good afternoon, Houston. I'm 11 up. Good morning, 11. In about 24 seconds from now, the spacecraft will pass the imaginary line into the Earth's sphere of influence. Mark, you're leaving the lunar sphere of influence, over. This is the point that the Earth's gravity becomes stronger than that of the moon and begins tugging our astronauts homeward. At the time the spacecraft uh, crossed to the Earth's sphere of influence, uh, Apollo 11 was about 174,000 nautical miles from Earth. At the present time, uh, the spacecraft is traveling at a speed of 3,994 feet per second with respect to the Earth. If you're not busy now, I can read you up the morning news. Okay, we're all listening. Apollo 11 still dominates the news around the world. Only four nations, Communist China, North Korea, North Vietnam, and Albania, have not yet informed their citizens of your flight and landing on the moon. Can you imagine not knowing that such an astonishing feat took place? One of the greatest accomplishments in human history, and hundreds of millions of people were denied the opportunity to celebrate the accomplishment with the rest of the planet. Tonight, President Nixon is scheduled to watch the All-Star Baseball game in Washington. After the game, he will depart for the Pacific Recovery Area and fly to the Hornet in time to witness your splashdown. The USS Hornet is the aircraft carrier in charge of recovering Apollo 11 when it splashes down in two and a half more days. McCandless has one last bit of news. Luna 15 is believed to have crashed into the Sea of Crises yesterday after orbiting the moon 52 times. When Apollo 11 reached the moon three days ago, the Russians were already there. Or at least one of their spacecraft was. Luna 15 was launched just days before the Apollo 11 launch. So you had essentially, in July of 1969, two missions to the moon. That's Asif Siddiqui. I'm a professor of history at Fordham University in New York. I write quite a bit about the history of space exploration, including the Russian side of things. The Americans sent Neil, Buzz, and Michael in Apollo 11, and the Russians, in a last-ditch effort to win the space race, launched Luna 15. Which was essentially designed to go to the moon, go into its orbit. The lander was supposed to come down, scoop up some soil, and lift off and fly directly back to the Earth. So they would bring back lunar soil before Apollo 11, showing the world 
that you know you you guys wasted all this money to land guys on the moon but we got it back you know cheaper and safer that's not what happened the Bernard Lovell at Jadrell Bank Observatory said that Luna 15 hit the surface of the moon at a speed of about 300 miles per hour. As it was descending to the moon, it uh, essentially crashed into a mountain. It's July 22nd, 1969, day seven of the Apollo 11 mission. It's time to talk about the space race. That's a term we're all familiar with. But for most Americans, the only part of the space race they really know is who crossed the finish line first. But that means that everything that led up to that moment is overlooked. After all, a race presupposes more than one competitor. Today, we are going to take a look at what launched the space race and some of the major milestones that built up to the moon landing. And we'll be paying special attention to the Russian side because the USSR beat America to just about every significant first-in-space milestone there is. But to really understand where all this starts, we have to go back to the end of World War II. Even though the, the Soviets have been our allies during World War II, it becomes quickly apparent the Soviets keep saying, you know, they're going to crush the West and communism will rule in the future. And the U.S. says, oh, oh no, you won't. That's NASA historian Bill Barry. The Cold War happens after the end of World War II, largely because nuclear weapons appear. And people realize that, well, World War II is bad enough to start with, but then it ends with, with these city killer weapons. And people are, are scared. It's like, we can't afford to have another war like this again. It's just too destructive. So lines get drawn. Uh, armies are built on both sides uh, with you know, nuclear weapons pointed at each other. But nobody wants to actually engage in a fight. The Communist Party of the United States is far better organized than were the Nazis in occupied countries prior to their capitulation. Their goal is the overthrow of our government. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Germany had developed a terrifying new weapon in the final days of World War II. The V-2, or vengeance weapon. The V-2 was the world's first long-range, supersonic, guided ballistic missile. At the end of World War II, uh, the Allies decided we need to go find out what the heck they were doing and make sure this technology gets collected for us. Because it's clear at the end of the war with nuclear weapons that if you get surprised in warfare after World War II, it's likely to be over. You know, if somebody launches a bunch of nuclear weapons and you get caught by surprise, that's it. One of the men responsible for the creation of the V-2 was Werner von Braun. Uh, he came from an aristocratic German family. He was a what we would today call maybe a space enthusiast. From a young age, he was really into cosmic things. Um, he gets involved in an amateur rocketry group. He realizes that the only way he's going to get money to build rockets is to work with the German military. About the time he does that, the Nazi party takes over. They see that this is a very bright young guy, and he go, moves upward through their rocket program until he's heading the V-2 design projects. He wants to go to space, but he's now building uh, rockets for this regime. Hitler directed thousands of V-2 attacks against targets in Belgium, France, the Netherlands, and the United Kingdom. London was among the cities most heavily bombed, killing more than 2,700 people and injuring three times that amount. In all, it is estimated that 9,000 civilians and military personnel were killed in V-2 attacks. V-2, another wholly indiscriminate weapon. It's the truly typical effort of the mortally injured Nazi beast to attempt to tear down everything as he goes under. And actually, more people died building V-2 rockets than died in the attacks with the V-2 rockets. Some 12,000 concentration camp prisoners and forced laborers perished building the V-2. And von Braun 
clearly knew about this stuff. He knew what he wanted to do, which was to get to space. And I think he made compromises along the way to achieve that goal. I think ultimately I would say he's an opportunist in the sense that he was willing to compromise in order to achieve his dream of space. And I think to the end of his days, he probably believed that his compromises were worth it. The military had a list of German scientists and engineers that they wanted to interrogate. And Werner von Braun was at the top of that list. When it was clear that Germany was about to fall, von Braun and more than 100 of his V2 colleagues sought out American forces and surrendered. They wanted to avoid falling into the hands of the Soviet army, which was less than 100 miles away. They provided the Americans with rocket blueprints and many of the missiles themselves. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. The Nazis surrendered late in April of 1945, the same month that Franklin Delano Roosevelt died and Harry Truman took over in the Oval Office. The War Department secretly smuggled von Braun and more than 300 rail cars of his hardware out of Germany. They didn't even tell the new president what they were doing. Somebody in the U.S. government decides that they're the connections of these people to the Nazi party in Germany is not something we really want to talk about anymore because they're kind of useful to us and we want to uh, have them stay here and, and help with our missile programs. And so they go to work for the U.S. Army. This was Operation Paperclip, a covert American program to use the Nazis' knowledge and know-how to design weapons for the United States. The OSS, which is the predecessor to the CIA, they basically whitewashed a lot of the personal records of a lot of these engineers, and some of whom were rather dubious. The Germans ended up at Fort Bliss in Texas. For the first several years, they were not allowed to leave the base without a military escort. They referred to themselves as POPs, prisoners of peace. Used to being coddled, von Braun now had to answer to far younger, far less experienced army officers. But what truly rankled him was the fact that the army was only interested in his missile technology and continually dismissed every proposal he put forward for rockets designed for space. Launching human beings into the cosmos was still his overriding ambition. When the Korean War broke out in 1950, Von Braun and his team were transferred to Huntsville, Alabama. He was put in charge of the army's rocket development team, designing America's first large ballistic missile, the Redstone. Finally, he saw a way to begin setting the stage for lift vehicles capable of handling massive payloads. The stuff of popular science fiction suddenly felt within arm's reach. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. <laughs> 
Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. This is Apollo Control at 148 hours, 58 minutes. At the present time, Apollo 11 has 172,654 nautical miles from the Earth, traveling at a speed of 4,017 feet per second. Given that there is little to do in the spacecraft, Mission Control decides it's the perfect time to pick Neil and Buzz's brains about some nagging moon questions. Uh, Roger, for $64,000, we're still trying to work out the location of your landing site. We think it is located on LAM2 chart at Juliet Decimal 5 and 7.8. For the 21 hours that the Eagle was on the moon, no one knew where they were. Remember that they overshot their landing site by four miles and had to set down at the first available opening, given their fuel state. While he was in orbit, Michael had been tasked to look for his colleagues with each pass he made over the Sea of Tranquility, but he was never able to find them. Bruce McCandless and the rest of Mission Control is still trying to figure out where humanity's first lunar footprints are. The position which I just gave you is slightly west of West Crater. I think that it's likely that that might have been West Crater that we went across in landing. The flight plan has relatively few activities scheduled for now uh, through the beginning of the crew sleep period tonight. Boredom. That's not something these guys, be they in Apollo 11 or Mission Control, are used to feeling. But I'm sure it's a welcome change from the past week. So what's new? Oh, we were wondering what was new with you up there. Nice to sit here and watch the Earth getting larger and larger and the moon smaller and smaller. We're not done talking about Werner von Braun, but right now it's time to take a peek behind the Iron Curtain and check in on the Soviets. As it turned out, the Soviets had their own version of Operation Paperclip, dubbed Operation Aziovakim. On a single night in 1946, the Soviets recruited more than 2,200 German V-2 rocket scientists. And when I say recruited, I mean... Kidnapped several hundred Germans and put them on trains and took them back to the Soviet Union. And they put them in teams, reverse engineering this rocket. The man in charge of Operation Aziovakim was Sergei Pavlovich Korolev. Sergei Korolev, in many ways, a counterpart to 
Von Braun, very charismatic person like Von Braun, a very good organizer. He was able to inspire people. Even when he was really young, he walked in the room, people knew that this guy was something special. Korolev was born in 1907. He fell in love with flying as a child and began taking flying lessons at 16. He later studied under the pioneering Soviet aviation designer Andrei Tupolev, who would go on to design many of Russia's most iconic aircraft. His interest in space began while working as the lead engineer on one of Tupolev's bombers. What if, he wondered, liquid-fueled rocket engines could be used to allow the bomber to fly higher, further, faster? Forms this amateur group in 1931, uh, just a bunch of young guys in their 20s getting together, building rockets on their own, you know, melting silverware at home to build rocket parts and things. And then they get snatched up by the Stalinist government who recognizes that these guys are smart and they get repurposed into an actual design institute to build rockets. There's no space at this moment. It's about rockets for war. Korolev was not interested in making weapons, but his group saw the research as a means to an end. And then his life took a darker turn. The shadow of the great purge falls upon the nation there's a nationwide great purge going on in 1937-38. Hundreds of thousands of people are arrested on false charges. It's kind of the apex of Stalinist paranoia, but a lot of people lose their lives. Karolev was one of those sort of caught up. Stalin's enemies, real and imaginary, are executed. Hundreds of thousands fall in the bloodbath. Karolev was falsely accused, and the newly married father of an infant daughter was sentenced to be shot. But on the day of the execution, his actual sentence was commuted and he was sentenced to 10 years in a gulab camp. So he got sent off to Siberia, a brutal, brutal camp where he works as a gold digger and uh, he loses a lot of his teeth. He has scurvy. Uh, he has injuries on his head and neck and all sorts of horrible things happen to him. Emaciated and near death, Korolev was saved when he was transferred to a special gulag for learned intellectuals who might be of use to the state. I don't think he ever got over that. He was a very hard-headed, you know, rude person. He didn't have time for people who were just screwing around, wasting time. In 1944, shortly before the end of World War II, Korolev was freed and ordered to begin designing ballistic missiles. One of his first duties was traveling to Germany to help the Soviets collect as much information, manufacturing, and engineering on the V-2 program as possible. The Russians started by reverse engineering the V-2 creating ever larger, more powerful vehicles. And he rose through the ranks until he was a really important guy by the mid-50s. His past in the prison was eventually sort of blotted out. While the Soviet government was keen on intercontinental ballistic missiles, Korolev, like von Braun, recognized that the same technology could, with only a few modifications, launch probes or even people into space. But the Kremlin had no interest in his outlandish ideas. That was, until the U.S. declared its intent to launch the first-ever artificial satellite into outer space. It was mostly hot air. The Americans' technology did not yet match their robust rhetoric. But Korolev was confident that with what he and his team had already designed, Russia could embarrass the Americans and get to space first. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age. On October 5th, 1957, the Soviet Union stunned the world by launching Sputnik, the first human-made object to ever orbit the Earth. 
As it did so, Sputnik sent out a distinctive beeping sound that could be heard by anyone with a simple ham radio. For Washington, the sound was terrifying. When the news gets to the U.S., all hell breaks loose and people are kind of freaking out because if they can put a satellite into space, they could put a bomb into space and it could land on, you know, Oklahoma or Kansas. America wouldn't get its first satellite, Explorer 1, into space until four months later, aboard a Jupiter Sea rocket designed by, who else, Werner von Braun. Few events in American history have been so awaited, prayed for, worked for, as the Army's successful launching of Explorer 1. But by that time, Russia had already one-upped them. Sputnik 1 is launched on October 4th, and once the Soviets realized that it was a very powerful PR tool, they wanted to do it again. And Nikita Khrushchev, who was the chairman of the Communist Party at the time, he calls in Karlov and says, can you do this again? And Karlov says, yes, and I can do you one better. I could put a little animal into this satellite. And so Sputnik 2 was designed, built, and launched in less than a month. 1957, year of space and Sputnik dogs. Laika, first space traveler, was ready for the takeoff. Nestled aboard was Laika, a stray dog plucked off the streets of Moscow. Unfortunately, the Soviets had not yet developed the technology to get Laika back home again, and she died in orbit. And suddenly people say, wow, okay, a thing that goes beep in the night is one thing, but a live dog launched into space, what does that tell us about how advanced their program is and what their objectives are in space? And suddenly the Sputnik situation goes from being sort of a curiosity, um, a concern, to being a major crisis. Sputnik 1 and 2 were like giant wrecking balls to America's pride. Suddenly, a new front was opened in the Cold War, the space race. In the rocket's fiery wake was America's sober realization that the battle had just been joined and that the work of self-preservation was at hand. Space historian Amy Shira Title. So it became this push to figure out, well, you know, we have to show our dominance in space because dominance in space is dominance in technology, dominance in rockets, which are missiles, dominance in our ability to solve problems and show that we're the strongest, best nation. And so the United States and the Soviet Union, their competition on which system of government is, is going to win out um, gets tied to space. And of course, the Soviets love this idea at the beginning because they're ahead. Von Braun and Korolev's wacky ideas about humans in space didn't sound so wacky to their respective governments anymore. One of the things that happens as a response to Sputnik is the creation of NASA immediately within less than a year in October 1958. But now we have come to a new day. NSAA is to become part of a new agency, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Right out of the gate, NASA launched the Mercury program, developing one-man space capsules designed to prove that humans can live and work in space. Von Braun and his team were moved under NASA's umbrella. He became the director of the new Marshall Space Flight Center, developing ever larger rockets. And though no one was asking for it yet, he began drafting plans for his magnum opus, the Saturn. Operation Paperclip's former Nazis were no longer advising Americans. They were leading them. Back in Russia, Korolev was also promoted. He essentially leads the Soviet space program for the next 10 years or so. Not that anyone in the West knew who he was. His name was never mentioned in Russian newspapers anywhere. He was just called the chief designer. An official reason given why they didn't disclose his name was that, you know, they were 
afraid that the CIA would come and kidnap him or something terrible would happen. In fact, even many of the Russian engineers who worked beside Korolev didn't know who he was. This only added to his mystique. And the Soviets, they didn't have anywhere near the size program that the United States had. They were brilliant, and they were very nimble. And they're watching very carefully what the United States is doing. They're saying, what can we do to outdo the United States? Up until 1964, the Soviets didn't really have a human spaceflight program. They had a, what can we do to embarrass the United States program? 1959 was a very good year for Korolev and the Russians. The Luna program was their robotics program to explore the moon. The first goal they wanted to do was to just impact the surface of the moon, which was a very difficult navigational problem because the moon is moving around the Earth. And they did that with Luna 2. The Luna 3 was a really ingenious spaceship, essentially spun around the back of the moon, photographed it, and transmitted the picture back to the Earth. This was the first time anyone had seen the moon up close. In addition to the Luna probes, Korolev also began working on the N1, a profoundly powerful rocket capable of escaping Earth's gravity well. The N1 was the response to the Saturn V. It's a giant rocket capable of ultimately launching about 95 metric tons into Earth orbit. Truly, a great leader for a great nation. Your next president, Senator John F. Kennedy. As a new decade dawned, John F. Kennedy ran for president of the United States on a platform pledging to close the space race gap and move America into first place. The Americans ushered in 1961, not with a dog in space, but with a chimp named Ham. Ham has done it. He has moved man closer than ever before to his age-old dream of traveling the heavens. Now it was time to send a human being. That human was Alan Shepard, one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. When Shepard informed his wife that she was hugging the very first man to go into space, she replied, who let a Russian in here? More prophetic words could not have been spoken. First great success in space, when the Russians pushed a man across the threshold. He was Yuri Gagarin. On April 12, 1961, 27-year-old Yuri Gagarin became the first human to travel to space and orbit the planet in Vostok 1. He remains to this day, I think, one of the most recognized names in all of Russian history. Most Russians, if you asked who won the space race, they would say, well, we won it. We got the first guy in space. As with Sputnik just two and a half years earlier, America had its collective breath knocked out of it. When Alan Shepard heard the news, he slammed his fist on the table so hard that others in the room were certain he'd broken it. The mood at the White House was no less volatile. Kennedy ordered Vice President Lyndon Johnson to figure out something dramatic that the United States could do to best the Soviets. Johnson met with a number of NASA officials for ideas, but it was Werner von Braun who most impressed him. Von Braun pitched something outlandish, a moon landing. The ex-Nazi was confident that he could get Americans to the moon by 1968. Johnson passed von Braun's recommendations to the president, who signed off on it. The United States was going to the moon. Three weeks after Yuri Gagarin's history-making flight, Alan Shepard became the first American in space aboard Freedom 7. His flight lasted only 15 minutes. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. This is Freedom 7. He was launched into space on a Redstone rocket, the direct descendant of Von Braun's V2. Now it was time to sell America on Von Braun's big idea. On May 25th, 1961, just 20 days after Shepard's 15-minute flight, 
President Kennedy stood before Congress and said, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. We think of Kennedy as the space race's loudest and most ardent cheerleader. And he was, at least in public. But on a day in 1962, shortly after John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth, Kennedy sat down with NASA Administrator James Webb, arguing that all of NASA's scientific and technological efforts should be subservient to Apollo. Let's listen in on a recording only made public in 2001. NASA Administrator Webb, and Jerome Wisner, the president's scientific advisor, were arguing that before the United States could land on the moon, NASA would first need to come to grips with a lot of unknowns about outer space. But Kennedy didn't want to hear any of it. Everything that we do ought to really be tied into getting onto the moon ahead of the Russians. Why can't it be tied to preeminence in space? Which are you because, because by God, we've we been telling everybody we're preeminent in space. For five years, nobody believes us because the policy ought to be that this is the top priority program of the agency and one of the two, except for defense, the top priority of the United States government. Otherwise, we shouldn't be spending this kind of money because I'm not that interested in space. Let me repeat Kennedy's words. I'm not that interested in space. The view that I grew up with in the 1960s was that Kennedy was this guy who was really interested in space and, and was a leader in the space program and, and saw the human destiny in space and all these things that people imagined. Um, and that, that sort of myth grew for a long time. Now, when those tapes came out, it became really crystal clear. You know, Kennedy's goal wasn't to send people to the moon or to explore space or any of that other stuff. What he really had was a political problem with the Soviets beating us up over space spectaculars on a regular basis, and he just wanted it to stop. Despite his stirring rhetoric, that's all the space race was to Kennedy. And he had good reason to think the Soviets were winning that race. In the summer of 1963, they launched Vostok 3 and 4. The two craft met in space, with just four miles separating them, and engaged in the first ship-to-ship communications. One of the two cosmonauts would later marry a woman named Valentina Tereshkova. Tereshkova became the first woman to fly in space aboard Vostok 6 in November of that year. The 26-year-old textile worker was the first woman in space, a feat of dubious scientific value perhaps, but what is its value in propaganda? Another first for the Soviet Union. She made nearly 50 orbits over three days and is still the only woman to ever undertake a solo mission. America wouldn't put its first woman into space, Sally Ride, until 1983, a full 20 years later. Kennedy soon began to regret endorsing von Braun's crazy moonshot idea. He and others were beginning to realize just how unrealistic the plan was. Kennedy has a realization that Apollo is super expensive and it might even bankrupt the budget. And he floats this idea of a joint project with the Soviets. While speaking before the United Nations, Kennedy said, Finally, in a field where the United States and the Soviet Union have a special capacity in the field of space, there is room for new cooperation. I include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon. Premier Nikita Khrushchev ignored him. If America was going to save face, it was going to have to make good on Kennedy's promise. On November 16th, seven months after the launch of Gemini 1, Kennedy visited Cape Canaveral and toured the facility with Von Braun, inspecting the extraordinary hardware already in use and the Saturn 1 rocket 
the predecessor to the Saturn V. The president came away from his visit with a renewed enthusiasm for the Apollo program designed to follow after Gemini. He was back on board. Five days later, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Back aboard Apollo 11 the crew sets up for another television transmission. Charlie Duke is now in the Capcom seat. Are uh, you picking up our TV signal? That's permanent. The uh, focus is a little bit out. Uh, we see the Earth in the center of the screen. Uh, let me uh, change. I believe that's where we just came from. It is, huh? Well, I'm really looking at a bad screen here. Stand by one. The image is blurry enough that Duke has confused the moon for the Earth. It's not bad enough not finding the right landing spot. We're going to get the right planet. Buzz decides to poke Duke a bit and remind him that he doesn't even know where on the moon he and Neil were. I'll never let that one down. Uh, we're making it get smaller and smaller here to make sure that it really is the one we're leaving. Oh, that's enough, you guys. Neil starts the broadcast, showing off boxes of moon rocks and soil samples that they're bringing back to Earth for study. We know there's a lot of scientists standing by to see the lunar samples, and as soon as we get onto the ship, I'm sure these uh, boxes will immediately be uh, transferred and delivery started to the letter receiving laboratory. Now it's Buzz's turn. But he's not thinking about moon relics. He's thinking with his stomach. Now that we've left the moon, I'd like to uh, trace through a little bit for you. Development has taken place in the uh, food department. He unwraps a food cube. These bite-sized objects were designed to uh, uh, remove the problem of having so many crumbs floating around in the cabin. So they designed uh, a particular size that uh, would be able to uh, go into the mouth all at once. 
Michael decides to take a quick detour and become a science teacher. Houston, this next is a little demonstration for the kids at home, all kids everywhere for that matter. Uh, I was going to show you how you drink water out of a spoon, but I'm afraid I fill the spoon too full, and uh, if I'm not careful, I'm going to spill water right over the side. Can you can you see the water slopping around in the top of the spoon, kids? That's primitive, 11. I tell you what, I'll just, I'll just turn this one over and uh, get rid of the water and start all over again, okay? Okay. Michael flips the spoon over, and the water resting in it now hovers in the air as tiny spherical globules. And you can see up there, we don't know where over is. Uh, one uh, up is as good as another. That really is water, though, I'll tell you. Michael swallows several of the tiny water spheres in midair. A couple decades into the 21st century, we're used to images like this from the astronauts aboard the International Space Station. But in 1969, images like this were downright magical. Uh, thank you from all the kids in the world who uh, can't tell the Earth from the moon. All right, just stand by one and we'll get you that Earth with. Can I have a picture now? That's primitive. I refuse to bite on this one, though. You tell us. This uh, should be getting larger. If it is, it's uh, the place we're coming home to. No matter where you travel, it's always nice to get home. We concur, Levin. We'd be happy to have you back. Can you tell the guys in the ship are really starting to loosen up? After years of intense training, they are finally heading home as conquering heroes. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. When we left off, John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. Two hours and eight minutes later, Lyndon Johnson was sworn into office. One of his very first acts was renaming Cape Canaveral. It would now be called Cape Kennedy. He also doubled Apollo's budget. Johnson comes in and he says, okay, the moon landing program, this is our tribute to our slain president, and we are going to the moon. And nobody in the Kremlin has any doubt in their mind that Lyndon Johnson is out to kick their butts. The Soviets realize, holy mackerel, the Americans are really serious about going to the moon. Von Braun's Saturn prototype the Saturn I, successfully blasted off into space with a dummy Apollo spacecraft atop it. Though the Saturn I was only half the size of the future Saturn V, it was a validation of everything von Braun had been pushing for. Five, four, three, two, one. Ignition. It was now definitely only a matter of time until man would first set foot on the moon. And yet, despite all of America's successes, Sergei Korolev and the Russians were still embarrassing the United States at every turn. In 1965, Alexei Leonov became the first person to conduct a spacewalk. Leonov brought a suicide pill with him, just in case something went wrong, and he very nearly had to use it. When he tried to get back in, he couldn't get back in the airlock because his spacesuit had ballooned. Leonov's spacesuit became bloated in the vacuum of space. He was literally floating inside of it. His hands slipped out of his gloves, and his feet came out of his boots. The only way he was able to get back inside his spacecraft was by releasing his precious oxygen until the suit became compact enough for him to squeeze through the hatch. The first artificial Earth satellite, the first moon probes, the first animals in space, the first man in space, the first woman in space, the first crew in space, the first spacewalk. So far, the space race belonged to the Russians. Between 1957 and about 1966, 
There's very few firsts that actually belong to the U.S. If you were watching this happen, you would have very little confidence that America would get to the moon first. But America was about to close the gap. On March 23, 1965, Gus Grissom and John Young flew on the first two-man mission, Gemini 3. Later that summer, Ed White conducted a 20-minute spacewalk while aboard Gemini 4. Finally, the United States had caught up. Over the rest of 1965, Gemini would continue to break records, including the first orbital rendezvous and the longest time spent in space up to that point, 14 days on Gemini 7. And then tragedy struck the Soviet space program. Chief designer Sergei Korolev went into the hospital for a routine surgical procedure. He never came out. He goes in for surgery to re remove like a, what's, what was thought at the time like a benign growth. But during the surgery, the doctor finds that there's a quite large tumor and it's cancerous. In removing that, they had to anesthetize him, obviously. But he had a very weak heart because of his time in the gulag. Korolev was just 59. Korolev died. And then the whole Soviet program was kind of thrown into upheaval. They've lost their, their key engineering leader and they replaced him. But nobody was really a replacement for Sergei Korolev. The tide had finally turned. Astronauts Pete Conrad and Dick Gordon performed the first ever direct ascent rendezvous with an uncrewed Agena target vehicle. This wasn't just for fun. This was a test run for what would later be Apollo's command and lunar modules. And the Russians? They landed Luna 9 on the moon, the first soft landing of a spacecraft. It was their 12th attempt. Rocket science is hard. The Russians also put the first satellite around the moon, Luna 10. These are hardly minor accomplishments. But probes are not people. Why does the Soviet Union lose the race to the moon? It wasn't that they didn't spend enough money. It wasn't that they weren't trying. They spent a boatload of money, uh, and they, they had huge programs, but they, they were disorganized, and uh, they started late. Their system was really chaotic. It works for short-term bursts of things, but it wasn't suited for long-term, sustained periods of innovation. The other reason is that there were a lot of competing factions within the communist system who had these huge engineering empires and they didn't get along. They were constantly fighting for the same resources. While he was alive, Korolev was only occasionally successful at unifying the various factions. Once he died, none of his predecessors seemed capable of navigating those fraught political waters. 1967 nearly derailed both countries' space programs. This was the year of the Apollo 1 fire. It was also the year in which Soyuz 1 crashed. That's the story that opened this podcast. The Americans took a long, hard look at their program and eventually rallied. Von Braun's magnificent Saturn program boasted success after success. In fact, the Saturn V would be launched a total of 10 times and never once suffer a significant failure. The former SS man was now an American hero. The United States finally had the moon in their sights. And while the Russian people were convinced that their country would still be the first to the moon, the engineers and cosmonauts were not fooled they could see the writing on the wall. After the death of Komarov, morale plummeted, and although the propaganda machine was still going at full power, fooling their American counterparts into believing that their communist nemesis was still neck and neck with them, they recognized there was no way they were going to beat the United States to the moon. The only thing left to do was beat them in a circumnavigation of the moon. But fearing just that possibility, NASA pushed the launch of Apollo 8 up several months, and four days before Christmas, Jim Lovell, Frank Borman, and Bill Anders orbited the moon. The crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. 
Apollo 17 astronaut Harrison Schmidt. Yeah, I think beginning with Apollo 8, uh, Americans really started to gain some confidence that the Cold War was not going to go on forever. The Russians' last victory in space came just a few months ahead of Apollo 11, in which Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5, both crewed, met in space and docked. They opened hatches to allow the cosmonauts access to both craft. But that was the end of it. In February of 1969, five months before Apollo 11, Russia tested Korolev's powerful N-1 rocket for the first time. Before he died, Korolev realized that if Russia was going to best the Americans into space, they'd have to take some shortcuts. Rather than a cluster of large, expensive engines, as on the Saturn, Korolev opted to fit the N-1 with 30 small engines. And instead of testing each stage of the N-1 separately, as the Americans did, Korolev proposed they build the entire N-1 and test it fully assembled. They bring it to the pad in 1969. They try to launch it four times, and all four times it explodes. The rocket known as Korolev's last dream was dead. His vision of men visiting the moon would come to pass, but the flag planted there would be the stars and stripes, not the hammer and sickle. Von Braun's moon vision was fully realized in July of 1969 with Apollo 11. The space race was over. Moon landings wouldn't have happened without this intense political issue between the United States and the Soviet Union. I mean, the space race is, is 100%, let's not kid ourselves, a product of the Cold War. I mean, this had nothing to do with science or exploration or any, like, goodness of mankind. This was entirely about showing the Soviets that we're better. Back on Apollo 11, the guys are still bored. Michael calls Charlie Duke in Mission Control just to idly chat. Well, Ike team's really got a busy one tonight, huh? Oh, boy, we're really uh, booming along here with all this activity. Can uh, barely believe it. What are you doing, Cinderella? Your feet up on the console drink coffee? You must have your X-ray eyes up. You sure can't see a long way. A bit later, Mission Control begins hearing some creepy sounds emanating from Apollo 11. Once again, the guys are trying to get a rise out of everyone in Houston. The song is Music Out of the Moon by Les Baxter, and Neil loves it. That's an old uh, favorite of mine. It's an album made about 20 years ago called Music Out of the Moon. But uh, it sounded a little scratchy to us. Uh, Neil, either that or your uh, tape was a little slow. Supposed to sound that way. That's well, a little scratchy to us, too, but I like it. It sounds odd because the primary instrument is a theremin, which, fittingly enough for today's conversation, is a Russian musical instrument that to this day is forever and inseparably associated with space. Neil may like his theremin music, but Mission Control, eh, not so much. Thank you, Eleven. We appreciate you turning that off. As the guys prepare for sleep, Duke relays one last piece of news to the crew. President Nixon, as he prepares to fly out to greet your return, predicted that within 31 years, man will have visited at least one other planet bearing some form of life. In the year 2000, we on this Earth will have visited new worlds where there will be a form of life. As of 2019, when I am recording this podcast, that prediction has yet to come true. We will be taking a look at the current state of the U.S. crewed space program in our final episode. Day 7 is over. On day eight, July 23rd, our penultimate episode, we're going to look at what happened after the astronauts got home. They left as reality stars and returned as the biggest celebrities on the planet. But behind the ticker tape parades, the world tours, and the White House dinners lay a dark reality. 
a future riddled with depression, alcoholism, and fractured families. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios. Executive producers, Ash Sorohia and Scott Bernstein. In association with High Five Content and executive producer, Andrew Jacobs. Amazing research and production assistance by associate producers, Brianne Shosaw and Natalie Robamed. Licensing rights and clearances by Deborah Correa. Our incredible editor is Bill Lance. Original music by Henry Benoit. The experts who contributed to this episode were NASA Chief Historian Bill Barry, Professor Asif Sadiqi, Space Historian Amy Shira Title, and Apollo 17 astronaut Harrison Schmidt. Special thanks to everyone at NASA who made this podcast possible, especially the incredible technological wizardry of consulting producer Ben Feist, who's responsible for organizing and cleaning the 11,000 hours of mission audio you're hearing selections from in this podcast. Special thanks also to consultant Gina Delvac. Kennedy Election Archive Audio compliments of the South Carolina Political Collections, University of South Carolina Libraries. Licensing rights and clearances by Deborah Correa. This is a brand new podcast, and we're so excited to be sharing it with you. Help us spread it far and wide. Tell your friends, leave ratings and reviews, and chat about it on social media. Our hashtag is 9DIJ. We would love to hear what you think. New episodes come out each week, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brandon Phipps. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 